Come on. They're right there. Let's go. Move, 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 move. This episode of Choices Not Chances podcast is sponsored by Louisiana Gun Shop. Located on Highway 90 West in Broussard, Louisiana, just south of Lafayette. For more information, stay tuned at the end of this episode. This is Choices Not Chances podcast with Ryan and Matt. I'm your co-host, Matthew Shrett. So next to me is Ryan Rogers. Ryan. Hey guys, welcome back to Choices Not Chances and I have a good one for you today. But before we get into the introduction, hey, if you see anything in this episode that strikes you, uh, moves you, something that you 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 think or you feel or you know needs to be shared out there please don't be selfish with the information put it out there and uh and let's help each other together let's let's spread the message uh today i got ricky johnson jr on the show with me uh it's not somebody that you know was on my radar prior to last year and then uh you know a mentor of mine hit me up and said hey i know what you're doing and, and you need to you need to interview this guy and i started looking at the content and couldn't agree more and um and so we we had been talking and trying to line up when when we could make the recording happen and so today's the day uh got matt and got the crew in for this recording and so we're going to kick it over but ricky thanks uh thanks for taking the time to come on the show and kind of kind of open up and share share lessons learned and life experiences with us and and we're, we're glad to have you on man thanks for having me on man i'm, I'm honored to be here absolutely so <clears throat> in the beginning uh like i said offline we just I, I just like to start off understanding where people come from right um geographically who do you come from and we'll start there and then just kind of work through uh siblings sports school sure. and then kind of transition and we'll yeah. just take the interview from there so originally i'm from southeast southeast missouri uh, from a small town called east prairie it's about 3500 people um i come from a small school as well i think my graduating class had like 50 people in it mm. um, i was athletic uh throughout my life i think i was pretty well liked by my peers um uh, made pretty good grades mm. i come from a, a middle class family uh hard hard-working people um the reality of my life is you know, I was raised, I was exposed to substance use as a young kid. Um, I lost both my biological parents to alcoholism. Uh, my mother was 49 when she passed, and my dad was 54. Um, so I was exposed to that as a, as a young kid. I was raised in the bars with my dad. Mm. Um, I don't blame them for how my life eventually uh, played out, uh, but being exposed to that, uh, it impacted my life, and um, I, I aspired to be, uh, you know, what I saw. You know, what I always share with people is, you know, what we see the most frequently and hear the most frequently, That a lot of times that becomes our frequency. Mm. So, mm-hmm. um, like I said, I, but I had good parents, had a good upbringing. Um, another situation that happened to me with, as a small kid, I was I was uh, violated sexually by a family member. I was molested. Mm. So that's something that also impacted my life um, early on, but still it still impacts me to this day. Um but other than that, I had a, I think I had a, I don't like to use normal upbringing, but I was a typical, you know, teenage boy, got into mischief and drinking at an early age. And uh, as, as we continue, we'll, I'll share more about how that impacted my life. Sure. And, and I'd like to just go back. Did you have brothers or sisters? I did. I've got a, I've got a brother. Uh, he's still in Missouri where I'm from. I've also got uh, two sisters, one's in Missouri and one's in um, East Peoria, Illinois. Um, I've got two stepbrothers as well. I had, well I've got one stepbrother. Uh, my other stepbrother was killed. Um, it's been, I think, in 1999 or 2000. Um, he was hit by a car, so uh, he's 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 deceased now. Check, check, and <clears throat> and uh, not to be insensitive, but as you're growing up, mm-hmm. um, and, and from your words now, you say you have a normal upbringing, but there are some abnormal oh, sure. things that are mm-hmm. in there, mm-hmm. and, and everybody's normal is different. And yep. I under, you know, and understand that. And I, not to take anything away, but at what age were you experiencing? Well, let, well, first we'll talk about the alcohol, uh, alcoholism in the, in the bar trips and things like that, and then the molestation after that. But I think age is big, right? Sure. In some of that, um, at least I don't know that personally, but I've read. You know, um, I love psychology. I'm yep. into it. I did it in, in college as well, and and so so a lot of the age brackets has a you know where you experience certain things in your yep. upbringing has a, a, a large imprint sure. depending on when that happens. And so was alcohol just always um, there? It's part, it was, it was part of the, it was part of the culture, culture where I'm from. Um, as, as, as early as I can remember, I remember going to the bars with my dad and it, just, it was just what I was raised in. I remember them letting me taste beer when I was like, you know, four or five and six. I, my dad let me taste it. And 
I don't like I said I don't blame them, but with me it created a monster because I I just I, it appealed to me. So it was I as like I said my earliest memories were going to the bar. Everybody it was where I'm from. All families did it. not all, but you know a lot of the people that was I was around. Everybody mm. they, were, they were involved in the same thing. Yeah. You know, looking back, it was a very um, dysfunctional way to be raised. Um, but that's just and I don't. But I don't. I, I always tell people my parents did what they knew and they did the best they could. But it did. You know, it did impact me, you know, not in a good way. No, and I can hear it in your voice. It's like you don't want to blame anybody for how your life is mm-hmm. uh, played out or your experiences that later came. But things in the oh. beginning of our life absolutely uh, set a trajectory, at least, that we either stay on or we could find a way, 100%. you know, or be great, yeah. you know, be be blessed enough to get off of. Yeah, for right? sure. Um, and so the alcoholism is always there. Now, was there bads that came from the alcoholism or were they pretty you know even hearted even killed people even when they were on alcohol say it one more time so like was there any anger uh that came from the alcohol no i never saw my my dad my biological father i never saw him being an angry person my mother she wasn't she wasn't an angry person and with my mother's alcoholism um it just progressively got worse as i got older um she was Mm. a beautiful woman i mean she i mean very pretty she was she and nobody outside of our, our outside of the house knew it uh, my stepdad raised me so he's he's still alive and he's the only dad that i knew but it was just something that outside of the outside of our home um nobody ever saw it nobody knew about it but other than you know my dad myself my dad and my brother we we knew how severe it was but it was one of those things where you know my mom was molested also as a small kid and i think as she got older that was just her uh that's how she known coping it. mechanism yeah yeah that's unfortunate yep and so and so alcohol was there from the beginning to the end, from the, from, as far as you were concerned. Yes. Yeah. I, I, you know, like I said, that life appealed to me because that's what I knew. And I, I, when I returned from the Marine Corps, I was like, I'm going to do what everybody else does. You know, I, you know, taking, um, to me, taking my son to the bar, like my dad did with me, that was, that was like a rite of passage. I could, I look forward to doing that to, to mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, let him be a part of something that I was brought up in just because I didn't realize how just how backwards my thinking was at the time. But, you know, looking back, it was just, a, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a very dysfunctional time in my life, for sure. Yeah. Sure. And so, um, and so the other topic, as far as molestation, mm-hmm. um, can you walk me through that? Sure. Just get a little deeper, because there's no <clears throat> doubt in my mind, you know, of every one person that stands up and tells their story about uh, childhood experience mm-hmm. like that, there's a hundred of them that oh, yeah. aren't saying anything, for I'm, every one. I'm, I'm so open about it publicly when i speak also because you know there's a lot of men that um they look at people like us as like a kind of an alpha guy and they're like you know they would never think that we've like me i've experienced something like that so for for them to hear me say hey man i've been through this as well mm-hmm. it's that connection that lets them know hey you're not alone you know, I've, I've gone through it but for me it was um you know i was young it was not something i it wasn't like i was necessarily groomed um it was a, it was an older family member when i was i think i was between six and nine maybe he was probably he was a teenager um it was one of those things where i knew it was wrong but it was kind of like monkey see monkey do there's other it was other other my other other people that were involved in the in the the scenario i don't want to get too graphic mm-hmm. but it was just a it was something i knew was this isn't this is weird you know i knew this was wrong and i but i followed through mm-hmm. i didn't tell my mother about it until i was almost 30 um, I was, and how know, long did this go on probably for a couple of years or so maybe i mean i don't have i don't have a lot of like vivid memory i mean i got the memories of it but i don't remember exactly the time frame that that it went on and i didn't i didn't tell anybody i didn't tell my mother about it until i was almost 30 years old never told her who it was and um it was just something i i just try to you know put it out of my mind is it is it um is something like that the the sensation or emotion that you have to to not tell her is that where's that come from embarrassment um i didn't want to i didn't want to make a big i didn't want her to make a, a huge deal out of it because in my mind i thought i was past it or you know i'm good now kind of mentality i just just never i didn't want to cause a scene i guess i just kind of looked at it as it happened um it's over with and i left it at that so mm-hmm. that's just the way i, I chose to deal with it mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. and so nobody in the family knew or knows about the other than the people that were other than the people that were also there i don't know if they've ever spoke of it publicly mm-hmm. 
I've talked to some of the other ones that, and I'm like, I just kind of brought it up and she put it, she's like, I put that out of my mind. Like it didn't happen. And she just, she didn't really. And you think that's a self defense mechanism as well for the human, for like a human being, let's say you're going through something traumatic, um, whether that's a car crash, whether that's combat, for instance, mm-hmm. or whether that's, you know, something, something, and I'm not comparing sure. them. I don't want you to think that, but something traumatic like that happens um, I almost feel like it's a self-defense mechanism to shard those memories out throughout sure. your span, right? 100%. And and could, only reason I, I liken it to, because with PTSD, when you come in like a, a traumatic event, uh, like in combat, your mind doesn't want you to recollect that shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it spread loads that. And then later you, if you choose, you can start to put that stuff back together. Oh, it's still, it's still um, like you, you talk about putting it together. It still impacts my life. Like I'm a very um, a modest a modest guy like um with intimacy i'm very big on like i never want my wife to feel like i'm pressuring her it's something i'm very cautious sure. with with kids like i don't i'm very cautious of picking up kids um going into a my wife calls me a touch me not i kind of grew out of that because when we first met i was like just didn't like hands on me at all you mm-hmm. know and then uh going into the men's locker room i'm i'm it's like a, it's like a minefield to me i just put my head down and kind of just i don't like seeing men's skin is very triggering to me mm. if i have the option i always use um a stall even to take a piss i just don't like my back turned to i, I want to be able to see mm. what's around me at all i mean just just the, th- the thought of another guy standing this close to me it's uh kind of bothers me a little bit so i'm very it's impacted me negatively but it's also made me more aware at the same time but the, yeah, I, I choose to embrace it as a gift you know i, I i'd rather i'd rather embrace it as a gift than just be pissed I look at it as a gift because it gives me an opportunity to connect with other guys that maybe maybe would never have somebody to be like, hey, brother, I've, I've been through this as well. You're not alone. So mm-hmm. that's why I choose to look at it now. Mm-hmm. I think that's beautiful. It's, uh, I'm a big fan of Jocko Willink. And, um, extreme ownership. Extreme yeah. ownership yeah. And, and good, man. That you There's good, and, and it's, it's, it's so hard to find good in something like that. Mm-hmm. But you've taken the good of that, and, and we'll get in, we'll continue to get into it, but you've yep. taken – that all that bad and found some sort of good to come out of it and and that is um that's amazing and and to me like the greatest um i don't want to get get into this too fast but one the greatest thing in my in my opinion outside of family and kids that the greatest thing that i could hear or the greatest thing that i could sense is compliments of other people or or reassurance of other people Mm. Um, that you're doing well, but most of the time you don't get those, right? Sure. <laughs> the best ones of those are the ones that people are saying it to other people. Yeah. Right. And when other people are starting to hear yep. what you're doing and starting to spread what you're doing, and then you find out, oh, I've heard, you know, mm-hmm. I, your message is killing. That's huge, right? Yeah, for sure. And then the other thing I would say is that, for at least for me personally, um, ever knowing that I was instrumental or influential in somebody else's success story is yep. the best compliment oh, or best praise that you could get. Yep. And a lot of times you don't hear that either. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. And so some of these unnoticed things that start to happen, but um, there's no doubt in my mind that you're helping people in a way in which is instrumental in the success story of sure. their life. I appreciate, and so that, I appreciate that should be that. Yeah. that that should be something you beat your fucking chest <laughs> yeah. over. Yeah. Um, because you took away to make something so dark and bad, and now you're the instrumental in the success of these people who thought there was no way out of that, right? Yeah. And so that's beautiful to me, and I wanted to I wanted to say that. But as we progress, um, so that's at a young age. The, the alcoholism's at a young age. You take a liking to the alcohol, probably one because chemical, uh, you know, mm-hmm things going on before you were born, yeah. before you yeah. were even born and, and so you got this genetic um disposition disposition uh for alcohol and um and so walk me through how that what that looks like as a teenager and then you know going into you know the transition into the military from being a teenager from there my teenage years were miserable i'm not I, i'm never one of those people that look back and think man i wish i could go back and do it again um i was just I got diagnosed with OCD way before it was, I was like 15 years old, but this is way before it kind of got out in the, in the mainstream. Household yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was, I was a kid that, um, I wanted to accept and truly bad. I had a lot of insecurities, but I was, you know, most of my friends compared to my parents, they had money. 
So I was always, I just, anything to get attention or gain acceptance, I was willing to do that. If I had to be more crazy or, you know, more, you got to be tougher or whatever it was. But that made me, that helped me to excel athletically. Um, I knew that was kind of my avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was always into, I was always into, uh, into mischief. I mean, not, not nothing, looking back, it was, ser- it, it probably was serious, but at the time it was just, you know, teenage boy stuff. Just, mm-hmm. um, Played football, basketball, baseball. I was a decent. You know, started. Now, now, when did that start? When did that? When did you begin team sports? Let's say. Oh, I, I played team sports my whole life since you were young. Since I was young, my dad, my stepdad was he's, he was my coach all through baseball and you know little league football, uh, major league basketball. Get to high school. Um, I played junior high sports. High school was uh, I, I was like I said, I was I was athletic. Started varsity basketball my sophomore year. Uh, my junior year, I started to tell back on our team. I hurt my leg real bad, so I didn't play sports after my junior year. Kind of, kind of put a halt to my, my my athletic days in high school. Then the next phase of high school was my son was born. I was 17 years old, so that uh, I was a boy having a baby. I thought I was a man. I needed some guidance and discipline, so I done what any intelligent young man would do. I, I joined the Marine Corps. <laughs> <laughs> So that was my, I knew it was coming. <laughs> yeah, I got young. I got young at 19 years old to my son's mother, um, and then headed to, headed to San Diego to boot camp, and that's when my my Marine Corps transition began. Check now. I can't say it's a bad decision. I mean, you're going to get sure. paid. You got insurance on <laughs> yeah, your family. Sure. You yeah. got paychecks coming in. But mm-hmm. was that the catalyst to your service? Like, I need to go get no, right? Was, or? It, I, well, I had like odds. And I worked in some construction jobs after um, high school. I got laid off. And I, the, the truth is I had support with my parents, um, her parents. So we, we, you know, but in my mind, I'm like, I got to take responsibility for all this. So I needed, I was like, I need to make some a quick decision. I went to see an army recruiter at first, and I, but that wasn't you know the Marine Corps was my that was the one why the challenge the extremeness of it I had an extreme personality hmm. and um, I'm just like I want to see if I can do this mm-hmm. and um you know looking back I, I I I don't talk about this often because it's not really embarrassing but I was like I'm gonna go recon you know that's what I was that's what my mind I didn't know I just thought it sounded cool you yeah, know yeah. <laughs> and then uh, I get to I went to Meps and they told me what they did and all this i'm like i don't know if i'm i don't know if i can make this it just kind of was just kind of a, a dream type thing get to boot camp um never been away from home really it was a culture shock i was yeah. i was a mama's boy and uh boot camp was you know with not 1999 so it was still a little bit it was rough in there for me <laughs> you know and uh made it through it um like i said i got married young um went to mct then my mos school i was a 1391 bulk fuel okay. um i was i ended up being an air wing marine for my entire enlistment i never okay. was deployed never i spent my entire enlistment in uh, beaufort south carolina at the air station so okay i pumped gas so it was my that was my my job for almost five years so sure. yeah now what about um and just tying this back around mm-hmm. was 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 boot camp difficult because i had to i know i had to do i had to do things and be close to men you know, showers yeah. and the PTs, oh, yeah. like, and I, that was uncomfortable for sure. me. You know what I mean? And it, I didn't have. To be honest with you, I got you. I got used to it. Mm-hmm. Same, I, it's, I look back and I did. It's just something that because you're just. I was forced into kinda it. Kind of have to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it was just everybody kind of was, was just what it was. There's was no. There was no. I had no option. So, yeah. I got kind of. I got used to that and there, uh, physically. Bouquet. I thought I was in shape until I went there. Then I got around some people that were really in shape, and mm-hmm. I kind of like. Saw that I needed. I had a little humbling. Of, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. No, from my from where I'm from, I'm thinking I'm the man. That I get there, I'm like, you really not. I realized quick that I wasn't the man. You ain't but, uh, the man no more. <laughs> yeah, and um, got sick in boot camp. Like oh, probably no. the worst I ever got. I mean, it was bad. I didn't. I didn't think I was gonna. I mean, I just kept pushing through. And I had I had the mindset my entire enlistment of the Marine Corps don't go to medical. Yeah, quickest way off the islands the first time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just well, you're not on the island. I was just but, saying, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I just I never went to medical and I pushed. Through, you know, I graduated, pushed through, and that's how uh, that was my my boot camp experience. Yeah. Check, check, good to go. And so, uh, bulk fueler, you get through the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I want to touch on 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 transition. Yeah. Um, did I miss anything, or is there anything else through active time you want to talk? You want to touch on? Oh, my my active duty was, like I said, I never was deployed. Um, yeah, I, but you were active during nine eleven. Yeah, I was. So, so how did so, what that look like? So what happened was, I went into ninety nine and I got out in two thousand three. 
So I did my four year, I did my four years, my four year enlistment. When 9-11 happened in that time frame is when a, a stop loss took place in my MOS. Mm-hmm. And um, I told my gunny, I'm like, look, if you're going to recall me, just keep me here. And, and he's like, no, you're good to go. So I sign out, my, you know, turned everything in, got my orders. Went back to Missouri for two days, and he's like, "Hey, you got to come back." I'm like, "Checked into that new <laughs> roster somewhere." <laughs> so I get back, and I had to. I worked with PMO uh, for about a month, and I'm like, "If you're going to keep me, at least let me go to my shop." So yeah. I sit there for about another eight months, and it's crazy that we talk about this. I still have dreams about not being able to go home, like being still like, "When are you guys gonna let, when are you gonna let me leave?" You yeah, know, I, I tell my wife about it all the time. I'm like when you know, in my dream, I'm like, "When are you gonna let me go home?" But so um. My my time in the Marine Corps was a lot of partying, you know, young, all these mm. new experience. I was, you know, I was by Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, um, Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. So things I places to hang out. Oh yeah, so things that I never experienced, and I I partied. We worked hard, and I partied hard, and I I discharged broke, had no money. I spent everything I had, blew mm. it, just blew it, mm. and um, so that's kind of my my mil- I had a, I had a kind of a bitter taste when I got out. I always tell people I'm. I'm more proud to have served now, looking back, than I was at the time. I didn't, I just took it for granted. I wasn't. I think you know. a bunch of people are just young, man. Yeah. You're young, and you don't get the gravity. And I talk about a lot of it now, um, especially with with guys that are older. Yeah. And maybe discharging between that 11 and 20 year mark, or yep. you know, you made it all the way. As soon as you get out, it's there. It's like, what is this? And it's like, you do a lot of it now, so I'm yeah. sure that hole is filled. Yeah. But it's like you're selflessly giving yourself whether you're conscious of that or not yeah is is, is another issue but at 18 you probably don't think that oh, no. and you don't realize like the the void that that fills to give back to somebody right to yep. to give back with with absolutely zero uh expectation of getting something you know in return yep. you're just trying to give right mm-hmm. and we do that when you put your name on that contract you do that and i say it on here all the time but i'm going to keep saying it on here it's like that is honorable. That fills that. You're doing something for people you don't even know, right? Yeah. And um, and that's a huge thing. Sure. That's a huge thing. And and when you get out, whether you knew it or not, it hits. And it's yeah. like, what is this? Why do yeah. I feel this, oh, yeah. you know, whatever this is? Yeah. And so, and that's a lot of the reason I wrote my book and launched this podcast is because it took me a couple of years to figure that out. Yeah. And I would love for guys not to take a couple of years of boozing and drugging and, yep. you know, running themselves in the ground. A lot of people lose families because they don't figure this out quick enough. Yep. Like their wife leaves them because mm-hmm. the alcohol, the drugs or the, you know, the, the extreme depression. And you almost can't be mad at the woman because it's like it takes a special person to take yep. somebody that completely changed and then comes home, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And and goes through this and they have to be strong. But um, but yeah, so we can move on from that. Um. On, I want to touch 9-11 one more time. On 9-11, did you see it? Were you watching it? Were so, you yet, you know, ironic you asked this because on 9-11, I was, so I was stationed in Camp Lee, or, um, on the air station. I got a DUI while I was in, so I was uh, transferred to Camp Lejeune to the um, substance use treatment program they had. Okay. And it was during 9-11, and that's when I saw, that's 9-11's when I, I was actually on Camp Lejeune for the first time. And I didn't hit Camp Lejeune again until two years ago when we moved here. So right on. And you so, spoke over there, right? I speak on there frequently. You're supposed yeah. to be over there, and I had—I mm-hmm. think I had some. You had a medical issue. I had a yeah. medical issue. Mm-hmm. Started shaking too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully, all that's behind us. So yeah. I was. So I was. I was in a, in the treatment facility when nine eleven happened. Yeah. Check. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, so let's kick over to transition. So you have a little bit of a bitter taste in your mouth. It's time to get up. You got stop loss, which mm-hmm. I'm sure puts a bitter taste because it's yep. like you have all these plans to get out this date, and then something happens, and now all of those plans are shattered. You don't even know how long you're going to be yep. sitting here, and that's rough. Okay, yep. so boom, now it's time to transition. Sure. What does that look like? Um, <laughs> I made a left turn as soon as I got out. I'll just be honest with you. I had good intentions. Um the, the the bad thing for me was I drew unemployment for as long as I could. I was irresponsible. Um, unemployment spoiled me. Um, like I said, I was a mama's boy at the time. My mother, my mom, and my stepdad had a they had a they had a uh, store that I worked in. As soon as I got out, like I said, I had good intentions to get a job, do the right thing. I was going to be the father to my son. I didn't have my biological father. And if I told you I made him a priority, I'd be lying to you. Um, I went head first into methamphetamine, alcohol, pills, criminal activity. 
Um, it was not something that I was really peer pressured into doing. I was just somebody that was uh, curious, and um, I, I I felt good doing it. You know, it was instant gratification, um, and it it took. I mean, it was the next ten years. That was my life. Um, you know, my son. He saw me during these time frames. He saw me get high on meth. Um, I would take him with me on drug deals. Uh, multiple occasions, I was so intoxicated on alcohol and pills, he saw me covering my own piss. Um, very twisted. And I would let him get high in front of me. Uh, very. This was this was later on in the later on in the stage after the Marine Corps. But um, mm-hmm. you know, my mind, I was showing him uh, the right way how to do the wrong thing, um, and it's a very backwards way of thinking. I was not some successful drug dealer. If there's such a thing, I wouldn't glorify it. Um, I was a nickel and dime thief. I stole from people, lied, manipulated, and I deceived. That's how I supported uh, my addiction at that time in my life. And like I said, it was from my dis- from the time I was 23 until or 22 until I was about 30 for the next 10 years. So, I, um, after a transition, I would I would get a job, lose it, get a job, lose it. Um, and it was all substance use related. Uh, mm-hmm. My transition was, I was not prepared. I didn't go to the VA. I didn't get involved in, you know, connecting with other veterans. I just had that mindset of, I'm, I don't want any part of this. Any, I don't want anything to do with this. Almost like you want to go complete antithesis oh, yeah. and go yeah. the, the other way as fast sure. as you can. And I, and I get that. A mm-hmm. lot of guys do. And, and what you see a lot with the Marine Corps is, um, is a lot of guys will, it's like a split. It's either, you know, outlaw or biker biker yeah. criminal yep. path mm-hmm. or like police SWAT 100% FBI CIA yep. like it's it's a lot of times those two splits and yep. you know you have your outliers you know and your randos that are going to fall in the middle of that but it does not look like a bell curve no it's you not. know what I mean so <laughs> yeah. yeah um and that's how it goes yeah. you know um my, my friends I my friends did that like they got out and I had to disconnect with them why they were running one percent clubs yeah. because it it just wasn't me. Yeah, like I was sure. trying to, I was trying to barely survive on my own <laughs> in my own transition, and yeah. they're they're out going wild with the clubs. And yeah. I get the appeal though. You sure. see what I'm saying? Like I get the appeal. Yeah. You got the the brotherhood. Know, yeah, there's mm-hmm. a brotherhood and there's a camaraderie there, and you're all in it together, and you're usually on the same missions and going yeah. to the same places, and and so I get the appeal. It's a lot yeah. like jumping to the same life. Yeah. Um, only there's a lot more laws that you can break and. Yeah. And there's not the buffer of the Marine Corps to try to help. You know, even like I said, with you know, with my, with my son, you know, I always swore that I was not going to do to him what my how my dad was with me. You know, I was not going to expose him to these things. I was going to make him a priority. And I remember my mom one day. She's like, Ricky, you're doing the exact same thing with him that your dad did with you. And I mean, I was, I was a dad that would come. I would go get him from his mother's, spend a few hours with him. Then I would like pawn him not. I used the word pawn him off, but I'd leave him with my mom. I went to do whatever I was going to do. Mm-hmm. And like I said, my mom and I, we had a, we had a, I don't use the word odd relationship, but we were just, my mom had me at a young age and I was, we were like best friends, but she was my mom at the same time. I was a mama's boy. So she was, she enabled me a lot. You know, she couldn't, she'd never tell me no. She'd always pick me up when I fall, you know, bind, bind me out, whatever, whatever it was I needed. She was always there. And she was, and she, that's like I said, she did what she thought, what she, what she knew how to do great woman but at the same time i needed some accountability which ultimately um as we move on that happened as well now let me let me ask this um and and, and i'm sure we're going to get more into it as we Mm -hmm. move or or or, and this might be premature but would you say that's the right way the way my mother was because i get wanting to take care of your kid but i also see the enabling side of it oh yeah i it's hard for me to say that because um the way I always, the way I see it at the time, it took me a long, it took me a while to figure it out. And without accountability, there's no reason to change. Okay, right. right. Um, and it's funny you ask because I spoke to a mother today about this same thing, and I just told her I was like, you know, she bonded her son out of jail that I'm friends with, and I said, you're probably going to get some pushback. People are going to tell you that you should have let him sit. And I said, I'm not telling you that you should or shouldn't. I said because it may have been the best thing for him to to bond him out. I don't know that. I said, but for me. My family let me set many times, and I said, looking back, it was it was it benefited me, you know. Mm-hmm. Until we, you know, the way my wife puts it is, you know, rock bottom is not until everybody stops supporting you. Yeah. And when they when they that when that happens, that's when you're truly at rock bottom. And I and I fortunately I had that happen for me eventually, and it it saved my life. So, yeah. you know, um, what I tell people about enabling and um, you're robbing them of the opportunity to learn and grow. Mm. So, 
mm. just something something to it, and it also tells people you know i don't think you can do this by yourself so you're just you keep picking them up and you know it's uh it's not always the best thing chuck all right well so what's what's forward from that so um my mother passes away in this time frame um i began getting more heavily involved in substance use catching drug charges dwis in and out of treatment facilities um ended up eventually uh catching two drug charges um <clears throat> part of my part of my profile is i am i'm a three-time convicted felon uh, for methamphetamines and dwis done a short time in prison i've been to jail multiple times i spent during this time frame uh five years on felony probation um, i paid in the state of missouri close to twenty thousand dollars in fines court costs intervention fees attorney fees um in the past, when I started getting the DWIs, like I've, I've got three, and I lost from the in the past 26 years, I've not had a license for 18 of those years. Um, my last DWI lost my license for 10 years, currently 11. I'm just in the process right now. Um, back in July, I had to fly back to Missouri to go to court uh, for the judge to grant me access or granted me uh, permission to pursue my driving privileges he's like you know uh, mr johnson you're not i don't know i see you no longer a threat to society you know you can i want you you can proceed with this so i've had to get the interlock device installed in my vehicle Mm -hmm. um my wife is suffering from my consequences from 11 years ago she's got a blow in it to drive yeah she's a good sport about it but it's something that weighs heavily on me because i'm big on i take responsibility i own i own my shit what i do i own it i don't want nobody else paying for it and um that really bothered me. Um, so right now I'm waiting on, um, still can't drive. I got to wait till October 24th, um, to get an assessment, then take class, you know, some hours of classes, then go to the DMV, mm-hmm. get, get the insurance. So it's been a, a long process, but the fact that I'm here right now close to driving is a, it's probably one of the biggest accomplishments of my life just because of how much I sacrificed to get from know from there to here so sure i know i was following that on your social media for the last several months i was watching the updates come through and um yeah driving's a big thing Mm -hmm. not that i not that i was having my license taken from me uh for for criminal activity but i'm still on the verge of if they're going to take them from me because of my epilepsy yeah and uh and that's that's tough. Like, what do you do if you can't? Oh, like, man. what do you do? And <laughs> it's, so, it's like, a, it's almost like they force you to break the law if you're an yeah. adult because it's like, <clears throat> how do I pay for an airlock? How do I pay for yeah. classes if you won't let me drive? Sure. But I mean, I um I proved that I was reckless behind the wheel of a vehicle. I don't. I, I now I now collaborate with law enforcement. I don't. I don't. I, you know, I can't say. I couldn't say that I always didn't have resentment because I did. But mm. now. You know, I I have a lot of friends that are law enforcement. Um, when I say collaborate, that doesn't mean I share information. You no, know, we they I, I share with them my my um, per- perspective, and they share with me theirs, so we mm. can better support one another. Sure. I've worked. I work in the. You know, I volunteer in the court systems and things like that, and that's how I've been able to gain access back into the prisons and jails and all that. But sure. But yeah, not having a license is a very um, helpless feeling. Not having any independence, having to depend yeah. on people. I'll you know, yeah. ask a ride here, ride there. It's it was a long, uh, a long road, you know, to get to where I'm at. Um, so yeah, it's that's that's a uh, that's that happened. At, you know, those those that tra- that all those things transpiring happened after my mother passed, and I spent the next ten years in that life. You know, it, you know, in you know, getting a job, losing a job, getting fired for having a you know dirty urine, um, just nonstop chaos, toxic. I was not a good person to be around. Um, I was just always under the influence, involved in something illegal. I probably had drugs on me. Couldn't trust me. I'd steal from you. Anything that I thought would benefit me, I'd take it. Not not robbing, but I would just—I was a thief. I, I've committed theft many, many times. Just not being a good person. Um, and even when I was doing it, I always had—I always had remorse. I always felt guilt. It was not—I was never like this, just remorseless remorse or just person that didn't care. I knew I'd do it. And I'm like, man, I can't believe I'm doing this. I always had a heart, but still did it you know mm-hmm. to uh get what i needed to get and as most of you said it before but most most of the thieving was to support the other 100 yeah. percent. So you didn't just go steal from people not to justify anything yeah. but i mean you're stealing to support you yeah. know you know financial help sure. to, to, to you know okay and what you know and, and i i wasn't i wasn't a victim i created victims my crimes mm-hmm. weren't victimless i was stealing from good people i was breaking trust um violating people's you know 
safe spaces and you know I'm, you'll hear people you'll hear people say they have no regrets okay um i have a lot of regret did i learn from it and did it would i be here without it no but looking back i don't feel good about hurting people especially mm-hmm. my son you know mm-hmm. and, and and i impact the people's lives in a negative way so what i always tell people is you know the regrets my guideline um, I don't ever want to forget about that because mm-hmm. it, I don't. It keeps me. It keeps me from getting complacent. Mm-hmm. I know if I get complacent, it'll kill me. So, mm-hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. I said that to a therapist one time about um, about the memories of friends because she kept telling me that until I take this bracelet off, that I wasn't going to heal. Yeah, I'll buy and that. it's like. <clears throat> No, I put the bracelet on because if I'm ever in that situation again, I need to remember exactly what I fucked up right here. Sure. So that I don't wear another one. You know, and I, I'm the same. Same principle. Yeah. yeah. I don't. I don't obsess over it and dwell on it and like consume myself with it. But I don't ever want to forget about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I. Ref, that's why I reflect a lot. When I reflect, people are like, "Ricky, you gotta let the past go." I'm like, "It ain't about me dwelling on it. I don't want to forget about who I used to be because mm-hmm. it, it, then you have a tendency to creep back up on you." So yeah. 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 So, how do we get out of drugs? How we get? What, what was the? Where's the Great. rock bottom? So, um, this is when I crossed paths with an angel over there, my wife. <laughs> so I was uh, divorced twice. I was living with my stepdad. At, I was 31 years old. Um, he got sick of my shit. He's like, "Listen, Ricky, you won't stop stealing. You won't stop lying. You're a terrible example to Landon, my son." Uh, he's like, "I'm done. Figure it out." And my son was, me and my son were living with my dad at the time. This is when, after my mother had passed. So he puts me out and I was homeless for a couple of years. I wasn't the with, guy. With your son homeless? No, my son was with my dad still. Okay, okay. Um, I, wasn't, I wasn't the guy living under a bridge holding a sign, but I was just couch surfing and using people. And I ended up in a rescue mission in Popper Bluff, Missouri, where I'm from. It's about an hour from my hometown. So what happened was. I was living in this place called the CSC Center, Community Supervision Center. It's like a jail, but you can leave and go to work. And I couldn't stay sober in there. I was bringing drugs from the factory I was working in. I was bringing drugs in, meth. Um, just I wasn't going to make it. And what saved me probably was the day that I was to take my drug screen to go full-time at this factory. Um, my urine was dirty. I got fired on the spot. Cried leaving. So, you know, I'm like, I'm done with this shit. I'm, I'm willing to do whatever I got to do to get out of this. So I go back to my PO, which I'm friends with now. Um, I said, Whitney, do you care about me? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, you got to get me out of here. I said, I'm not going to make it. She's like, where do you want to go? I said, I want to go to the rescue mission. Because it was structured, they had more spiritual based. They had better food. They had workout equipment, things that appealed to me at that time. Went there, and this transition took place for me. Um, the way I always tell people is I'm not the most religious person, but I'm very spiritual. I'm a spiritual, a religious man fears hell, and a spiritual man comes from it. Hmm. And in that rescue mission for me, it was like uh, the material walls collapsed and the spiritual world awakened for me. And I said, I, I, I prayed to God, like, you know, I'm willing to do whatever I have to do. I'll always get back to the next man. I never doubt you when things don't go my way, and I'll always give you credit when I'm blessed. You know, and at that rescue mission, it took a lot of, tr- it took a lot of uh, flexibility and commitment, but, um, my wife was working at a building down the street from this rescue mission, and mm-hmm. we just crossed paths one day, and meeting her changed everything for me. Um, she believed in me. She saw something in me I didn't see, and it motivated me to – it gave me the motivation to be the best person that I could be because I knew that there was no way in hell that she'd give me an opportunity if I was living the way that I was. Mm-hmm. Um, married way out of my league. Um, I joked everyone's – you know, Julie's got two master's degrees, and I got three felonies, so we're like the, we're like the yin and the yang. <laughs> We bounce for another round. Got control over there and chaos over here. <laughs> so uh, that's when the transition for my for me getting sober began. Uh, just to, and, and I just uh, Julie set boundaries with me. She held me accountable. And she wasn't going to settle for anything less. She's like, look, if we're going to be together, this is the way it's got to be. You got to stay sober, respect me, and keep a job. You know, you got to be responsible. And I needed I needed somebody to do that. Mm-hmm. And she was she was willing to do it. And um, my life took off. Um, I, I faced not long after the most painful traumatic experience of my life, but, um, I, I was sober, I was sober for the first time in my life and it was through, uh, you know, through meeting Julie, just having somebody to believe in me and, um, it just, it, uh, it inspired me to, uh, get it together. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. And thank you over there. <laughs> You're amazing. Um, it's amazing how, 
I try to I try to think about this in my in my own mind when I get frustrated or I get angry or um, you know like stressed out. I try to think like everybody else is stressed out too. Oh yeah. There's other things going on in everybody's world, and just try to be the light. I put that on my on my uh, on my uh, platforms all the yep. time. Be the light. Be the light. Be the light. Because everybody has so much darkness you know there's everybody has things whether you want to admit it or not everybody has things and if you don't have things you're fixing to have things for sure and so like be nice she may not have to marry you but just be nice to you on the road and realize you know and gave you positive encouragement about who you could be and um you know it's funny you say it's funny you say that because her being nice to me is what gave me the uh, courage to be like Maybe she likes me. <laughs> and, and maybe I need to stay straight for <laughs> yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I misread her totally. We talk, we laugh about it now, but that's what kind of, her just being, looking me in the eye. Like, it made me feel like she's really interested in me. And I had nothing. I mean, I had nothing. I had three changes of clothes in my name, and that was it. That's all I had. I had debt, baggage, uh, divorce twice, felonies. I mean, I was, I was everything that you shouldn't want. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, but by her just looking me in the eye and, like, talking to me being nice to me i'm like man i got it i got a chance with her mm-hmm. <laughs> and it just gave me the courage to keep to see what's going to happen getting better oh yeah yeah getting better yeah because true hell is when you meet the person that you're supposed to become true say it again because true hell is when you meet the person you were supposed to become okay i like that yeah so if the ricky then died let's say mm-hmm. and you go to heaven and god said that's that's who you're supposed to be that's who you were supposed yep. to be, and you fucked that up. I like that. I'm going to have to remember that. And it gives me cold chills. I heard yeah. it. It's not my words. I yep. heard it from somebody mm-hmm. else. And, and sickening because I don't even know yep. where I heard it, but I heard it. And and that's right, man. If you could yep. look over and see you, if that past you yep. could look over and see you, would even think that was possible? You know, it's, I, it reminds me of a quote I read that said, uh, the most pain that will ever, something to the extent, it said the most uh, pain that will ever feel is our unfulfilled potential. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like that. It's same. exactly it. Yeah. 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 And now, um, because you meet an angel, because somebody shows you a little bit of um, tough love, let's say, and responsibility and ownership, like you're changing lives now for the better. Sure. And, and I, I want to continue mm-hmm. to progress through it. But um, talk to me about the transition between meeting Julie and, uh, let's say, booking your first speaking gig. Sure. So the first thing I'll share with you about you know meeting julie is i was i think i was 31 or 32 my way of thinking i was i was in a, i was a i was a boy in a man's body very immature reckless um you know i was uh i needed i needed a lot of work and when i met her she's like listen ricky she said um she said i hear you saying one thing but you're doing another she's like your conduct doesn't match your words and she said i want to explain to you the way that you appear to other people and man when she told me the way that i truly appeared it hurt because I thought, was, I thought I was a funny, likable, cool guy. But the, the truth was I was obnoxious, insecure, loud. Um, just wasn't good to be. I thought, but nobody ever really sat me down and said, listen, Ricky. I need, she loved me enough to, to tell me. And it that's what began the progression and change in my life. So sure. so I met, this, I met this amazing woman, my soulmate. Uh, my life was taking off. I was using my GI Bill, going to college, making the dean's list. I was back in the gym. You know, gaining the trust back of my dad, my stepdad, my family, the community that I terrorized. But most important, I was I was finally to be finally able to be the father to my son that I neglected being uh, for so long. And, you know, something I always share before I get to the next part is like, you know, a lot of people think with success and progress, they think um, things are going to get smooth and life's going to fall into place. But it's an uphill climb always. You're going to be tested. Um you know, success is asking for a larger set of problems and the courage to continually solve it. Hmm, and, you yeah. know, when, when life's going smooth, I always tell people the enemy's around the corner. You're going to be tested 100%. Yeah. So, you know, for me, um, all the time that I spent worrying about what, what I wanted, what I needed, poor Ricky, Ricky's locked up, Ricky's addiction, I neglected uh, the person that needed me the most, and that was my son. You know, all the broken promises, the letdowns, the lies. You know, I put other substance users, my addiction, um, in front of him the message i was sending to him was these people in this life overhear me more to me than spending time with you um and it uh and my conduct proved that i was a liar um 
long story short, you know, Julie and I were already married. Uh, December 12, 2015, I get a phone call. Um, my 18-year-old son felt like he didn't have any worth or value, and he goes to a city park and he hung himself. He took his own life, so it uh, knocks the piss out of me to this day. It still, it never goes away. I wake up brokenhearted, go to sleep brokenhearted, it never ends. Um, I'm not mad at my son. I'm not mad at God. Uh, my son made a, he made a bad choice. And the way that I choose to look at it is his death killed me, but inspired me. It inspired me to be a better person. Um, there's, you know, I'm, I'm very aware every day of how my conduct can impact somebody in a positive or negative way. Do I blame myself for his death? Many days I do. Uh, but I can, I can assure you my conduct impacted his mental health. Um, and I wasn't the only one, but I take responsibility for my, my part of it. And the reason I share that with people is I want them to know, hey, man, how you treat people, it, it, it can impact them in a positive or a negative way. Um, there's days I wake up pissed, can't drive, my son's dead. I got three felonies. There's, there's a million excuses I could use to be a negative person and project it on other people. Um, but I refuse to do that. You know, I, I reflect and, you know, um, I always look for my reason why. And even doing this, even this tonight was my reason why. This is, these are the reasons I get up every day. I care to be a good example to these people I speak to. Um, I care that they look at me like, you know, Ricky Sue says that he is. He inspires me. And I, I care to let people down. I care that people, I don't want to disappoint people. Mm-hmm. And that helps hold me accountable and helps me to uh, not be be complacent. So yeah. that was the uh, that was a transition in my life that um, inspired me to pretty much be who I am today and be doing the things that I'm doing today. That's what, uh, that's what lit a fire in me. So, yeah. I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, I don't, I don't have any depth there. I don't have anything that I can say that make anything better. Finding the good in in the death of your child is, I've never lost a child, so I have zero to say there. But I can say that I can't even say that. But I would ask, what was, what was the biggest. What was the biggest um, positive influence on your resiliency to go through that? Oh, my wife, 100%. And I also looked at it like um, I refused to let – the way I looked at it was I'm not going to let my life be wasted and my son's life be in vain. And that's the way I chose to look at it. At the time, I didn't see it then, but, like, I'm sure it disturbs people when I tell them – they're like, how do you deal with it? And I said, by dealing with it. I don't run from it. I don't numb myself anymore. I sit through the pain, process it, and I work through it. And mm-hmm. I, I choose to look at my son's death as his gift to me. You know, I, don't, I know it sounds morbid, but that's the way I have to look at it. Because do I hurt from it? Does it make it any less painful? No. But if that wouldn't have happened, I wouldn't be sitting here with you today. That's just, And that's the way it is. And people contact me. I, I get contacted by parents who've lost kids to suicides or overdoses or whatever. And I said, look, guys, I honestly, I just said, listen, I said, there's nothing I can say to you that's going to make this any less painful. It's always going to be there. But we just, we learn, we get stronger and we adjust and learn to get through it. And I said, what's going to happen is this. I said, you're going to get through this. You're going to persevere. I said, you're going to gain wisdom, experience, and all this knowledge. And I said, down the road, I said, I guarantee you that you're going to cross paths with somebody else who's going through what you're going through right now. And I said, you're going to have that experience and wisdom to support them like I'm supporting you. That's going to be your, your obligation to your fellow man. And I mm. said, that's the way I look at the situation with my son. Does it make it hurt less? Do I have bad days or bad moments? Yeah, but um, I'm not going to project it on other people. So going through it, I was fortunate to have my wife. I never had thoughts of going back to my prior life. That was, that was the thing that everybody worried about was I was going to you know, go backwards and you know, I tell people now, I'm like, I'd rather be dead than go back to that hell I was in. I was, it was a living hell. That's not living. True. It's not living. <laughs> Exi- mm. Yeah, 100%. So. Existing, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the thought of, and I tell people this, what keeps me going even now and, and even then, I'm like, do I, have bad mo- do I have bad thoughts and bad moments? 100%. You know, we all even, I have a good life now, but I have those, those bad thoughts in my head, like of self-pity and, you know, that. You know, this, you know, my life, she'd be better off and just crazy. thoughts. We all have those kind of crazy thoughts. What keeps me going is, you know, I can't imagine transferring onto my wife the things that I feel for my son's death. And, I, and what I tell people is this. I said, you know, I can't imagine leaving my wife behind for the rest of her life wondering, you know, 
why was it my love for him and his love enough for me to keep me alive? You know, what I do wrong? Mm-hmm. And that eats me up. That keeps me, like, pushing forward and, like, you know, not having any of those crazy thoughts. So yeah. that's that's what always uh, keeps me pushing forward for sure. Yeah, man. Yeah. You know, Jordan Peterson, you know who that is? Yes. So I'm a big fan, and he would, he would say, like, never underestimate uh, the hole, the gaping hole that your lack of existence would be to everybody that knows you. Sure. And that's so true. Like as bad as things get, and I try to, you know, I try to say this to my community because yeah. I have a community in which you well know yep. who is absolutely killing themselves with alcohol. Mm-hmm. And you could say other illicit drugs, and I don't think that would be accurate. I think they're involved, but I think by and large, they're getting drunk, blacking out, and shooting themselves in the head. Yep. And these are my brother. I've lost more people outside of combat than I lost in combat to this yep. stuff. And I try to tell them, like, of all the things, like, there are, there are so many dark, bad things that could happen in the world, but I will show you people that have got through them. Yep. I can show you people for... Ever, there's been people losing things and 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 getting. Look at Israel right now, and there's going to be people that persevere, that step up and say, "I I follow me. Yep, I've been to where you've been. Yep, I will get you out of that. Yep, for sure. And um, and it's beautiful. That's yep. what you're doing. That's yep. um, I think a lot of it too. The reason I like uh, can almost relate, and I think our, you know same community but yep. but it's relatable is like that's where we come from yeah that's the place that we come from we help each other we get each other out we're, we're alpha we're gonna roo, mm-hmm. roo, roo, you know what i yep. mean um and too many guys don't want to lean on them they don't yep. want to make a call they look at this prideful yep. um they feel like they're the only ones hurting and they don't want to be embarrassed or or call their buddies or call their leadership from the past and say hey i i need help i'm in a you know nobody yep. wants to do that Yep. And it's exactly what we should be doing. Sure. You know what I mean? So it's just it's just to have somebody that <clears throat> I always tell people, I think from I think most all of us know in our hearts and minds when we're doing too much of something and not enough, especially if it's causing a negative impact in our life. Mm. We're not trying to be fixed. We just want somebody to listen to us and validate what we're going through. Like, hey Ryan, it's understandable you feel this way, brother. You're not alone. You're mm. not weak. You're not you're not you're you're not a um weaker person for thinking these things mm-hmm. i have these thoughts as well you know that's and we just want somebody to listen to us and you know to be there that's mm-hmm. always like you, you know connection saves lives oh right? yeah so and it's just huge that's you know you it seems cliche but you hear people all the time saying you know make the call make yeah. the call and it's so right and it's right in two ways it's right in the way that maybe the person that picks the, fo- the phone up needed you to call right then yep or maybe you needed them to answer right then, yep. and you didn't even know you needed you know, them to answer right I had, then. It's funny you say that. I had a guy, not funny, but I, it's been probably a year ago. I have a friend that uh, he struggles with alcohol a lot, and um, he, he'll he'll call me occasionally under the influence, and it's one of those conversations where he's not hearing nothing I'm saying, you know, and it just mm-hmm. it's one of those like just I got I have to have a lot of discipline to sit yeah. through, and it's been about a year ago. Um, he called and when I saw his name on the phone, I was like, "Damn!" Because I just knew what it was. And my wife, I told my wife, "I was like, I gotta answer it." So I answered the phone. I'm glad that I did. Um, it was one of those conversations we talked and I, I listened and you know, I tried to give him some, you know, encouragement and just. Um, I don't ever give people advice. I just share with them my perspective. But yeah. after I hung up, he texted me. He's like, "Hey, um, I pre-, and he he thanked me for answering the phone because of what we're talking about. You know, he's like, um." you kept you answering the phone prevented me from making a bad choice so mm-hmm. i try to always remember those type of things and even you know even with um something i'm still triggered by with my son's death is when you know, i spoke to i spoke to my son on the phone seven hours prior to him hanging himself and this i'm glad we brought this up because i can i, I want to share this publicly because I, I always do but when i spoke to my son on the phone um he was calm collected happy content just nothing seemed wrong um, he had wrote me a letter that I, I share publicly when I go give presentations. He cleaned his room. So that was very out of the ordinary. He'd never done. Um, you know, looking back at those at that phone call, there was a ton of red flags. Okay, the fact that he was, you know, obviously going through those things. We don't want to think our own flesh and bloods thinking of self harm yeah. or suicide. Yeah. But looking back, his calm demeanor. Um, he was happy. He knew he knew that he was not going to hurt anymore, and he was content mm-hmm. with that. 
So am I saying if somebody goes from an extreme behavior change of depression to happiness or happiness to depression, am, am I saying they're thinking of self-harm or suicide? Absolutely not. But it's something to pay attention to. Sure. So what I tell people is like if you see your brother, your Marine brother, sister, whoever it is, if if they're going through these extreme behavior changes, it doesn't take a lot of effort to, to text or call or approach somebody and be like, hey, brother, hey, sister, I just want to check on you. Is everything okay? Mm-hmm. That interaction might be the matter of saving somebody's life. Yeah. But the point I was going to make was with that phone call with the with the phone calls. Well, my wife and I lived at the time we didn't have cell, we didn't have cell service. Um, when we got to when we finally got to cell service, my wife's phone starts blowing up with text messages, missed calls. You know, people were already posting on social media about my son before I'd even seen it, before I even knew about it. I, I, I you know, and it's still true. You know, anytime somebody calls my wife, especially our family, I'm like, answer the phone. Mm-hmm. don't 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 not answer it but um when i got back to our computer that night people had already been messaging me prior to me even knowing about my son's death so it's like a, it was like a really uh just a weird situation with that so i'm big about answering the phone i try to always you know if i can get to it i'm gonna get to the phone absolutely what was the hardest part <clears throat> um that's such a such a crazy question mm-hmm. but as you see it as you feel it what was the most difficult part of that? Of the which part of of losing your son? Oh man, because um, that, that sounds like it'd be pretty yeah. hard that way to not know and then have all these. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I was. I guess I was. I was pretty much in. I don't want to say I was in shock because he had been struggling, and you know you don't want to think that's going to happen. But I was like, it wasn't. I wasn't just like, I can't believe this this happened. But it was, it was just a weird. Honestly, the hardest part for me, it's something I still have, it's hard for me, is that he, you know, it took, um, I'm able to be for other people when I wasn't able to be for him. But at the same time, if it wouldn't happen, I wouldn't be who I am today. So I have, I, I carry guilt with that. I carry guilt about that at times because, I, you know, I have, I have two stepdaughters that are uh, 20, how old is Leah, babe? 28 and 30, just 32. I'm able to be for them the father that I wasn't for my for my son you know and i and i and i just just through trial and error and learning you know what's acceptable so um that's still what's hard for me mm-hmm. yeah Chuck, what was your first your first uh, let's say speaking gig first speaking engagement was so i started so what i started doing was i started um i just started sharing my entire life on facebook every mm-hmm. every bad thing i had done i put it all out there um, the way I, well, the way I tell people is, I'm willing to stand in front of a group of strangers and expose my entire life, risk humiliation and embarrassment to inspire one person mm-hmm. and to gain confidence. Mm-hmm. I didn't pursue public speaking. Okay, I still stutter bad. I talk fast. Um, I get nervous at times. Forget what I'm trying to say. Um, what I say is, you know, whatever we fear the most, when we, when we overcome that, that's going to become our greatest strength. So, when I started putting content on social media about you know, six years ago, people were like, hey, man, you need to put a, start doing videos. And I, I did that, got decent with it. Well, I started public speaking into a mirror and, and an iPad, crying, sweating, you know, mm-hmm. stuttering. I'm like, God, why are you calling me to do this? My first speaking opportunity was to a high school football team that my friend coaches in Monroe City, Missouri. He's he's uh, won a state championship a couple of times, and he's like, hey, man, will you come speak to the guys? I'm like, yeah. Had it wrote all on paper. Uh, you know, <laughs> thought I was prepared, and I was far from it. You know, I was I was a mess. But I got the I got the point across. Yeah. From then to now, I probably presented well over three hundred times, probably a couple, probably two hundred different venues. Um, I pro I progressively add more. I can I remember everything verbatim. I can I'm I'm to the point now where I can like add stuff and go off path a little bit and you know get the I I never had any training doing it. I just kept doing it and mm-hmm. repetition. Mm-hmm. That was my first one, and that's what, uh, you know, it just kind of picked up momentum from there, word of mouth, social media, and I, I knock on a lot of doors, like on, on LinkedIn and stuff like that. What did, um, what was the sensation or emotion or feeling that you got when you spoke the first time? Nervous as hell. Yeah. Cry, you know, just, how, how do you think I look, babe? Uh. <laughs> anxious yeah well, like i said i was, i've 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 um my energy's a lot better now like i've 
I, I never I never get in front of an audience. I still have nerves. No confidence what. though. You yeah. have nerves, but you have confidence. Yeah, right? I'm a lot more confident. Um, I spoke really fast in the beginning. Um, just I look back at old videos, and I was not that I'm not close to the same speaker in person sure. that I was then. But it was a uh, the first time was it was a mess to me. It was, but yeah. I, the, the kids they got a lot out of it just because of the transparency of what I was talking about. Sure, so, yeah, sure. That's awesome. I asked that because that first speaking gig there's a lot of nerves that go into that man and yeah. i've done it i've done it a good number of times now but my first one was because you're like you don't want to mess up but you've never done it yeah you know what i mean you can watch somebody speak in front of people as much as you want but until you get up and oh, you yeah. have to present your yep you know your cause your efforts your niche to somebody it can be it, it can be that way i still get nervous but i think a little bit of nervous excitement is good sure. i think it yeah. keeps you like you know, I would, I would rather be nervous than be complacent. Sure. Uh, my, the worst experience I've had by far was um, <clears throat> it was on Camp Lejeune about a year ago. The weather was cold outside. Um, it was windy, raining, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I had like ten groups that day. The, the Camp Lejeune benefited me tremendously in the beginning because of COVID nineteen because I could only speak to like 20, 20 Marines in a group. So it was just rap. It was nonstop all yeah. day, and that gave me a lot of repetition. But on this day, it was cold outside. My iron was getting low. Um, I stepped in front of a hundred Marines. My mouth literally froze. Like I was just like I couldn't even. I, it was a public speaker's worst nightmare, and I just yeah. stood there. I mean, I and I'm just like stuttering, and I pushed through it. And the next the next group, I did good. But that group, I, I mean, I I was like, please let this be a dream. I, I wanted to bury myself. Yeah, it was terrible. Yeah, it was bad. But I grew tremendously from it, just from from not stopping. I just, sure, you know. So sure, it's like uh, when you're in little league and you're pitching, and uh, like let's say your dad's the coach. Yep. And let's say you're having a terrible game. You hit like two people in a row. Game's on the line now yep. because they're gonna walk some guys home. Sounds like this is from experience. <laughs> <laughs> and he just leaves you out there to to lose the game for your team to mm-hmm. teach you a lesson. Yeah, man. Yeah, those are lessons though, and those are good lessons generally. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, life is struggle. You said it earlier, but it couldn't be more true. This this wasn't supposed to be easy. No. You know, go all the way back to Sisyphus pushing a boulder up the hill just yep. to go to the bottom and push the boulder back up the hill over and over and over. But I think when we get towards the end of it, we realize that it's not about getting somewhere. We're not trying to get there. It's about the journey getting 100%. there. It's about the people and the interactions yep. and the connections and the product and the you know, the deal and the, and the sensation and emotion, that's where you're alive. Yeah. You're not alive at the end. The, <laughs> yeah. end. the end is just the end. Nope. You're alive during the journey. Um, and, and my wife and I talk about that often because, you know, people are like, how'd you get from point A to point B? And I'm like, in between here was the important part. You know what? It did just happen overnight. It was a lot of. The 24 other letters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, man. That's awesome. Okay, so where are we going now? Tell me about where we're at now. Sure. What we look for, uh, like, what do we got coming in 2024? Sure. Um, so last year I started, a, and I'll get to some, opp- I have some massive opportunities coming up, and I'll get to that. But and uh, last year I started a nonprofit called the Simple Relentless Project. Um, I jumped in feet first. You know, prior to that, I worked in community outreach with the homeless veteran population. Um, I'm a peer support, and also I was a, I was the uh, outreach coordinator. I was like the tip of the spear. I'm the guy going into the woods behind a dumpster. Wherever there might be a veteran at or, or a civilian, I would go to them and try to get them connected with services. So I went from that to public speaking full-time, traveling. So the Simple Relentless Project is pretty much um, what it is. Is just, It's just uh, the nonprofit I started that helps me with funding to help me to, to uh, be able to support the mission as far as going to speaking at places, you know, traveling, all that's entailed with that. You know, I speak in prisons, jails, schools. There's not, a, there's probably not a demographic that I've not spoke to, and that's mm. that's the beauty of my stories because mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not like confined just to veterans or just to high schools. I'm due to my lived experience. I have a lot of, I have a broad reach, and yeah. even even with the groups I speak to, if if they can't relate to what I'm talking about, they probably know somebody that, that's going through it. Yep. So, um, I've got some big opportunities coming up uh, with the Virginia Department of Corrections in November 28th in Richmond. The governor may be there. Uh, this is with um, the substance use disorder program manager. They're having a conference for the whole state. Okay. This transpired through LinkedIn, knocking on doors. And yeah. uh, 
I'm traveling to Missouri October 26th to speak at like 10 different places. I've got a big conference there. I'm speaking at a prison. The big opportunity I have there, and there, you know, don't get me wrong, every opportunity is significant. Sure, sure. But professionally, there's other opportunities that's going to help me to gain more exposure. I got my first opportunity with uh, the federal court system. So I'll be speaking at US, the U.S. Uh, district court there. Uh, they got like a they have like a program for uh, it's kind of like veterans court but it's like for uh, federal offenders sure. so that's going to be a um, a lot of exposure for that so um, we got the ball rolling pretty good we got a lot of momentum right now yeah that's right on and when when do you expect to speak speak next possibly october 20th okay and it'll be on camp johnson okay so right i think on. uh if you're available for that you may get the you can tag along with me <laughs> yeah check it out get some pictures man maybe yeah. i'll see if i'm available all right man well matt you got anything look man i appreciate you coming oh, yeah. on and i appreciate the transparency sure um and because like we said in the beginning it's just for every one person that's struggling with any issue and mm-hmm. voicing it there's a hundred to a thousand people that yep. are struggling with that same issue and are not voicing it right well i, I appreciate what i appreciate about this specific um podcast is this is the most in-depth interview i've ever got to get got to take part in so i appreciate everything you've asked me it's always therapeutic uh for me to talk about it mm. what i always share is to be therapeutic it doesn't mean you have to be a therapist it's yeah. being present with somebody and be willing to listen to them mm. so thank you for having me it was, it was an honor absolutely absolutely i look forward to watching you uh progress and watch the speaking progress and um and even help and take part anytime you need something from me or or matt joey please reach out to us let us know what you need help with and um and please stay in touch because okay. i think what you, you're changing lives man and and um anybody that i can see changing lives it's another reason why i didn't go so so quick right yeah. uh vladimir told me yep. um shout out vlad he told me you know you got to have this guy and then i wanted to watch you for a sure. while i had to make sure absolutely of what i'm getting right yep. and there's a lot of gimmick out there there's oh, yeah. a lot of people out there running shows running this running that and if you watch them long enough it's a gimmick and you yep. see it and yep. i don't bring gimmicks on this show for sure um i bring people who are making a positive a net positive uh um impact on people and i don't care how you do that yep. because it's just we need mother Teresa said you want to change the world go home and love your family we need more people to impact positive change in a local manner yep uh exactly what you're doing so um man i appreciate you coming on appreciate you too brother thank you all right guys choices not chances we're going to get you next time we appreciate it well that concludes this episode thanks for listening to choices not chances podcast please share like and subscribe wherever you listen or watch our podcast You can also follow us on social media at Choices Not Chances Podcast. Thanks, and have a great day. Louisiana Gun Shop, your firearm headquarters, specializing in concealed carry guns, ammo, and training. You can get your Louisiana permit with us. Also, a large selection of AR-15s, or if you are that build-it-yourself type of guy or gal, we have all the parts to build and customize your own AR-15. Glock, Sig, Taurus, Ruger. We have all the brands, both in the store or at louisianagunshop.com. Not too far. You're marking the building. Hit him. Yeah, that's good. That's a good shot. That's a good shot. Yeah. Yeah.